Hello and welcome once again to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, and I'm so glad that you have taken time to listen in to uh, the teaching of the Word of God. And that is something I want to give as an assurance to you that during these podcasts, we want to be Christ-centered, and we want to be teaching God's Word. And I want to say right up front that uh, yours truly, me, (laughs) constantly finds himself in, in a situation where the Word of God is changing the way I think. You know, so often I can approach a subject and think it's a certain way, and I may think it's a certain way because, well, that's the way I was always taught, or that's the way I always understood. But when I go to the Word of God and carefully study what the Word has to say, it's important for my mind to agree with the Word of God, to submit to the Word of God. And that is certainly the case today. And such was the case recently when I was leading a Bible study uh, in which my good friend Alan Scott was attending, and the subject matter that we're bringing up today came up, and uh, he challenged me. And it was a good challenge from the Word of God, and it got me digging afresh and anew in the Scripture, and this teaching is really the result of that challenge and uh, really several years of study in the topic material coming up. And uh, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a different attack, both in two ways. One, uh, this is not part of a series, kind of a standalone podcast, and... uh, The second thing that's unusual is I'm going to be reading to you an article that I've put together. And the reason why I'm reading an article, my article, to you, normally I don't like to do that. I'd rather just teach and, uh, you know, have it more of a, less of a reading thing, more of sort of a spoken thing. But the article is important. The material that's in this article is very important for you to take time to read, and it's available at our website, dailyinchrist.org. That's dailyinchrist.org. I think having it in recorded form is also helpful in that you can listen to it when you're not able to read, and hopefully by listening to it and reading it later, uh, that combination can have a powerful effect. Well, the title that we have for this particular recording is this, and it's also the title of the article, Not Under Law, What the Struggle Verses of Romans 7 Really Means. Now, you bring up Romans 7, and most Christians immediately think of the struggling with sin discussion verses of uh, verses 14 through 24. They therefore conclude that the chief subject of Romans 7 is about struggling with sin. Worse, they buy into a false theology based on an improper reading of this chapter, out of context, that Christians are stuck struggling with sin till the day they die. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Romans 7 is one of the clearest statements in all the scripture that those in Christ are not under law. That thesis is found in the first six verses of Romans chapter 7. And it is a natural continuation of the thought developed in Romans 6, that those in Christ are united with him in his death at Calvary, and therefore dead to sin. Romans 7 picks up the same theme and makes the revolutionary point that we are also dead to the law. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to take some time and read Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bible, open it up. Ideally, it would be good if you could read these verses right along with me. Now, I'm reading in the New King James Version of the Bible. 
Romans 7 says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive, once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that, the, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Well, there you have it, Romans chapter 7 in its entirety. And what I'd like you to observe is that Romans chapter 7 brings out three elements. First, the bondage of sin. Second, the law. Third, deliverance from the law and sin through the body of Jesus Christ, grace. 
The theme of the bondage of sin, law and grace, first comes up in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, which reads, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Notice several things here. Sin, not having dominion, which speaks of authority over, something being in subject to, as under a king, or being in bondage to, as is the case of a slave. Not under. That speaks of the subservient position of one under a ruler's or master's authority. Not under law. Speaking of the old covenant law, including the Ten Commandments of God and not being under the authority of the law, but under grace, but being now under God's authority of grace, the unmerited favor of God. Let me point out here that when some Christians hear that we are not under law, they object because they mistakenly imagine that we are not under anything. Well, the scripture plainly teaches otherwise, It declares that we have been removed from one very limited realm of authority and placed under an infinitely superior realm of authority, Jesus Christ, and his all-sufficient grace. Romans 6.14 marvelously launches this theme, which is more fully developed in Romans chapter 7 and 8. This article will point out the fact that Romans 7 makes it abundantly clear that those in Christ are not under law. It also shows the precise reason for the law, to overwhelmingly convince the sinner that they are dreadfully and mortally entrapped by a cruel master, sin. It does this by provoking sin out of hiding in the sinner's life. Now let's dig into Romans 7 to see how it unfolds the amazing truth that those in Christ are not under law and therefore not under the dominion and bondage of sin. The case is made that the law has dominion, lords over, rules over, as long as a man lives. Verse 1 says this, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, the covenant of marriage is used as an example of this, in which the wife is, quote, bound by the law to her husband. Verse 2, it says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. From this, notice two things. First, being bound by the law to someone. This speaks of a relation, a legal one, which cannot be severed. Second, being released from the law. This twofold theme is developed in Romans chapter 7. It is important to note that a very important thesis theme is being bound by the law versus being released from the law. This should raise the important questions, who is bound to the law, and who is released from the law. These first verses in Romans 7 draw a parallel of our relationship with the law, and then to Christ, in marital terms. Scripturally, marriage is considered a covenant. This is extraordinarily important, as the Bible speaks chiefly in terms of covenants, the most important being the old and new covenants. Further, in verse 3, it is pointed out that if the woman, while still married, marries another, she is called an adulteress. 
In other words, you must be married to one or the other, but not to both. Here's verse 3. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now notice that the second part of verse 3 that shows the way to be released from the law of the husband is death. Death itself annuls the marriage covenant and releases both parties from the exclusive claim that they have upon each other in the covenant of marriage. The allusion to marriage here is meant to point to the covenant relationship that a person has with the law. We know that the law does not die. Jesus himself said, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Matthew 5.18 Therefore, if we are to be released from the law, we must die. But how does this happen so that we yet live? Romans 7.4a gives the amazing answer. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. What incredible news! We have become dead to the law. That death has released us from the law. We are no longer bound to the law any more than a dead wife is bound to the law of her husband. How did we become dead to the law? Through the body of Christ. Romans 6 more fully developed this idea by saying that we have been baptized into his death. Romans 6.3 and buried 6.4. We have been united together with Christ in the likeness of his death. Romans 6.5a. Our old man, therefore, was crucified with him. Crucifixion means death. Christ was crucified and he died, and we were crucified with him and died. See also Galatians 2.20 and Colossians 3.3. In Romans 6, we discover that our death through union with Christ and his death means death to sin. That death to sin means release from the bondage of sin. Now, in Romans chapter 7, we discover that that same death also means death to the law. That same death with Christ means release from the law. It means we are delivered from the law, verse 6. I cannot think of a more striking picture of the absolute end of something than the matter of death. Yet that is exactly what the Bible declares. Those in Christ are dead indeed to sin, Romans 6.11, and dead to the law, Romans 7.4. Romans 7.2 says if we are dead to the law, then we are released from the law. We are no longer in bondage to it. It no longer has any authority or rule over us. Do get a hold of this. This is not my teaching. This is the crystal clear teaching of the Bible. Praise God the story doesn't end in death. Romans 6.4 declares... Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 7.4 gives us the reason why our death with Christ, and therefore death released from the law, was necessary. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God.
So this death with Christ makes possible two wonderful things. First, marriage to another, the one who was raised from death, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now brought into a covenant of love with Jesus. This speaks of Jesus entering into relationship with us. Second, fruitfulness to God. And what greater fruitfulness than that of the Spirit? Galatians 5, to 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This speaks of the output of the Christian life, full of the rich fruit of God, His character, His effectiveness. Fruitfulness always speaks of productivity in the Bible. Romans 7 is a striking study in contrasts. Being married to the law versus being married to Jesus. Verse 4. Being in bondage to the law versus being released from the law. Verses 1 through 4. Serving in the oldness of the letter. Law. Versus serving in the newness of the Spirit. Grace. Verse 6. Bearing fruit to death. Versus bearing fruit to God. Verses 5 and 6. Being killed by the law versus being alive in Christ. Verse 9. Being in bondage to sin under law as a sinner, verses 7 through 24, versus being released by Jesus Christ, verse 25. The life of the sinner in bondage to the law and sin versus the life of the saint walking in freedom and fruitfulness to God, Romans 7, 4 and Romans 8, 2. Viva the difference! The difference between the sinner's bondage to the law, sin, and death versus the saint's freedom from the law, sin, and death. To be married to Jesus and bear fruit to God. Now we get to the matter of the great controversy of Romans 7. Does those struggling with sin verses, verses 14 to 24, depict the experience of a Christian or a person before salvation? a sinner, or maybe both. Most Christians agree that verses 7 through 12 speak of a person before salvation. The controversy exists over verses 14 through 24. Probably most Christians would say that these struggle verses speak of a Christian's experience, or at least the experience of both the sinner and the Christian. The reason of this position may not necessarily be theological, but rather one founded in their own struggling with sinning. Notice I use the verb sinning there and not the noun sin. Let me say that the focus of this debate, however, is completely wrong. Romans 7 is not about struggling with sin. You may say, wait a minute, what about all those struggle verses? Yes, there are a lot of those, but that is not the principal thing that Romans 7 teaches. What does Romans 7 teach? I just taught you a little earlier. Remember? The thesis verses of Romans 7 are not found in those struggle verses of 14 through 24, but in verses 1 through 13, particularly verses 4 through 6. Listen to verses 4 through 6. Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now, 
we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Take a moment and let those three verses sink in. Pay close attention to what I've emphasized as I read it. Dear friend, may I challenge you? Would you allow the inerrant, inspired Word of God to correct your thinking? Would you repent? The Greek word for repent is metanoia, which literally means change the mind. Would you change your mind about what you think about your relationship with law and sin so that it lines up with what the Bible teaches here about these things? Would you forsake and renounce your own personal theologies and be willing and humble to allow God, by His Word, to correct your thinking and theology in accordance with His Holy Word? Oh, I've had to do that many times in my own life. I still do. But what freedom we discover, what riches of God's grace are found when we allow God's Word to teach us and lead us to where God wants us to go. If you struggle with this, ask God by His Spirit to open your mind. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. It's a great prayer. It's a great prayer for an understanding and that we would see, so that we would be able to see and understand this. Now, friends, with fresh eyes and an open mind and the Spirit's help, could we, would we read verses 4 through 6 again? Listen, listen very carefully. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Observe the following great truths from this passage. You have become dead to the law. What kind of relationship does a dead person have? None. Is a dead person under anyone's authority? No. We are dead to the law. Therefore, we have no relationship to it. We are not under its authority. This has happened through the body of Christ. Romans 6 declares that we are united with Christ in his death, verses 3 through 5. And by virtue of that union in his death, we are dead to the law. This means that the law has absolutely no claim, no authority, no jurisdiction whatsoever over one in Christ ever again. As mentioned earlier, the reason for this death through Christ to the law is so that we may be married to another, the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 7, 4b. Another reason for this death through Christ to the law is so that we may bear fruit to God, uh, verse 4c. We have now been delivered from the law, verse 6a. Now that we are delivered from the law, we can now serve in the newness of the Spirit, verse 6b. Now that we are delivered from the law, we should not serve in the oldness of the letter, the law, verse 6c. 
Remember, you are dead to the law and released from its authority so that you may be under something else, grace. We are under a far greater authority than the law, Jesus Christ and his grace. We serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter, law. God gives us a far greater and better way to serve him. Hallelujah. Well, what about those struggle verses of Romans 7, verses 14 to 24? Well, the answer is found in verses 7 through 13. After having clearly established in verses 1 through 6 that those in Christ are dead to the law, an important question is raised and answered in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Now the discussion moves from the plain declaration that those in Christ have been released from the law through death to the purpose of the law to make known sin to the sinner. Up until this point, it can sound like Paul thinks the law is not a good thing. He anticipates this objection and tells us what the relationship is between law and sin. He says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. First, it is important to understand that two very different Greek words are used for the known of known sin and that of known covetousness. It is extremely important to understand these two important words, as the English known in both cases comes off as know about, sort of head knowledge, where the Greek words speak of a far greater thing. The known of the phrase known sin is the Greek word gnosko, which means to come to know. Then the verse says for. Whenever you see for beginning a clause, it gives the reason for the first clause. So the reason why I come to know sin, the problem of sin in me, is the for of Romans 7, 7b. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The Greek word for this second known is far different and far deeper. It's the Greek word ido, which means literally to see or see full well. The best way that I can describe what this means is it's an I-see-it knowledge. It's a lot like what happens when the light is turned on in a dark room. Now you can see what's there as opposed to not being able to see moments before. Putting this together in Romans 7, 7, apart from the law, the sinner really clearly can't see and fully understand how serious their sin problem is. They have no idea of the furious strength of the bondage of sin. Sin is a problem out there and not a problem with me. The law lets the sinner see that they are hopelessly in bondage to sin and that the very nature of themselves makes them an object of God's wrath. Ephesians 2.3 How does the law do that? This is precisely what Romans uh, chapter 7 verses 7 through 24 is all about. Romans 7, 7 describes the process succinctly. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. We see the following. 
first, the law steps into the life of a sinner and says, do not covet. The Greek for covet means an inordinate desire. The law describes this as an inordinate desire for someone else, someone else's spouse, someone else's stuff. Second, what is the law supposed to do? Stop sin? Oh, to the contrary. The sin nature within the sinner is actually aroused and awakened by the law. Verse 9. In other words, the law provokes the sinful nature of the sinner out of hiding, and sinning increases. Romans 5.20. Third, the sinner's hopeless bondage to sin becomes as obvious as the horror of a person trapped in quicksand. The more he struggles, the more he is hopelessly entangled in the mire and sucked deeper into the vortex of death. In a shocking moment, he realizes he will irrevocably die and there is absolutely nothing he can do about it unless someone else rescues him. The real nature of the beast, sin in the sinner, rouses to life when the sinner encounters the law. Let's clarify here. The noun sin is used repeatedly in Romans, as opposed to the verb sin, as in sinning. Sin used here throughout Romans is a far more comprehensive word here. It refers to a dread condition, like cancer. The problem isn't merely the individual sins committed to the fact that they happen as the result of the condition of sin in the sinner. The sinner has a nature that is sinful. It is the antithesis of all that is good in God. Therefore, that sinful nature makes them an object of God's wrath. Ephesians 2.3 God uses a divinely chosen instrument, the law, to prove to the sinner how bad they are, how shockingly dreadful is this condition of sin in them. It does this by agitating the sinner so that his real nature, a sin nature, is provoked and comes out of hiding. The purpose of this isn't to prove anything to God. <laughs> he knows all things. But to prove to the sinner that they are indeed a sinner, hopelessly in bondage to sin, with a sinful nature that is so bad, it's a target for the wrath of God. You see, this is similar to a man who starts having headaches all the time. His wife insists that he go to the doctor and get it checked out. For weeks, he says, Oh, it's no big deal. It's just a headache and doesn't go to the doctor. <laughs> finally, after weeks without relief, he agrees to finally go to the doctor. Well, after medical examinations and diagnostic tests, the doctor sits the patient down to tell him the horrible news that he has cancer. The doctor shows the patient the images of his brain and the large tumor in his brain. Finally, the patient is convinced that he himself has cancer. Not someone else, not his co-worker, not his neighbor, not even his wife. He is the one with the dread condition of cancer. Now that the patient is convinced that he has this awful, deadly condition, he agrees to radical measures to rid, be rid of the cancer. Surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Now imagine if the same doctor did not take time to try to convince the same patient that he had cancer. He doesn't bother to tell the patient the results of the tests. He doesn't show the patient the scans of his brain. Instead, he skips over all that and tells the patient, who has no idea that he has cancer, I'll tell you what, 
I know a great brain surgeon who would be glad to drill into your skull and cut part of your brain out. What do you say we schedule you for surgery tomorrow morning at 7.30? (laughs) Well, that patient would run away fast from such a crazy doctor. And who could blame him? Why in the world would anyone agree to such a radical procedure unless he was thoroughly convinced that it was he himself who was the cancer patient? You see, that is precisely what the law is for. It is meant to chase down the sinner and relentlessly prove that that patient has the cancer of sin, which drives the sinner to cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 Now this sinner, fully convinced, convicted, that he is indeed a sinner, with a hopeless, awful, sinful nature that does nothing but draw the righteous and holy wrath of God, is now ready and willing to receive God's glorious answer. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7 verses 14 to 24 graphically shows just how the law convinces and convicts the sinner of his dread condition of hopeless bondage to sin. Verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. This definitely cannot describe a Christian, for in the very next chapter it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Romans 8, 9. Verses 14 to 24 of Romans 7 take the first-person narrative form to vividly describe what this collision of law, sin, and the sinner looks like. It's so striking that everyone can relate to it very well, saying, That's me. The problem, however, is that we can so easily get lost in the dramatic use of the present tense and the highly personal force of verses 14 to 24 and completely forget the clear theological truths of verses 1 through 13. When we focus on verses 14 to 24 and neglect the theological verses of 1 through 13, as well as the wider body of truth presented heretofore in Romans, we end up with wrong theology. A theology that says that Romans seven fourteen to 24 is about Christians struggling with sin. Even worse is the positively false theology that claims that Christians will hopelessly struggle with sin until the day they die. Such dreadful theology, so-called, keeps Christians needlessly locked up in a dungeon of sin with no hope of getting out until their last heartbeat. No wonder so many Christians are living lives of needless bondage to sin. They've been taught they are sinners. That's patently unbiblical. They've been taught that they have a sinful nature. That's patently unbiblical. They've been taught that there is a continual war going on inside of them. The new man, new nature, at war with the old man, the sinful nature. That's patently unbiblical. They've been taught that they have corruption throughout themselves. That's patently unbiblical. They've been taught that they will be in this hopeless condition of bondage until the day they die. That's patently unbiblical. Away with these awful carnal doctrines of men that subvert the clear teaching of the Word of God. All it does is dishonor the finished work of Jesus Christ and leave Christians thinking they are in a hopeless bondage to sin thus depriving them of the only real opportunity for victory over sin. 
Praise God for the glorious truth of all of Romans, not just a select few verses taken out of context. The entire epistle rings with great clarity, the simple and powerful message. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What could be clearer? All true righteousness is from God alone. All other righteousness is an abomination. This is not by works, but by faith. It is of faith that it might be according to grace. Romans 4.16 In summary, here is the real message of Romans 7. First, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Verse 1. Second, we are dead to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 4. Third, the reason for this is that we would be married to another, Jesus, and bear fruit to God. Verse 4b. Fourth, the sinful passions of a sinner are aroused by the law with the result of bearing fruit unto death. Verse 5. Fifth, now that we are dead to the law in Christ, we serve in a new way in the Spirit and not in the old way of the letter, the law. Sixth, someone may object claiming, claiming that we're saying the law is sin. No way. Seventh, the reason why the law arouses sin in the sinner is that the very command that says thou shalt not awakens and arouses the latent sinful nature of the sinner and sin springs to life, producing death. Eighth, this is how a sinner comes into intimate first-hand experience and knowledge of the dread problem of sin and his sinful nature. Ninth, verses 14 through 24 uses graphic first-hand experience language to make it abundantly clear just how the law's interaction with a sinner results in that sinner being completely convinced and convicted of the fact that they are a guilty sinner hopelessly mired in a dreadful sinful nature that rightly evokes the wrath of God. Tenth, the result of all this is that the sinner now says, I see it. I am the sinner. I have a sinful nature. Woe is me. And finally, eleventh, the sinner cries out for rescue for someone else and finds his Savior, his rescue, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the wonderful truth of what Christ has accomplished in the believer, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Well, dear friend, that's the article, and again, it's available at the website dailyinchrist.org, and it's titled, Not Under Law, What the Struggle Verses of Romans 7 Really Means. Beyond that, I want to encourage you to listen to, download uh, the series that I have put together called Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. 
Uh, that series is groundbreaking in many ways in uh, clearly teaching what the Word of God has to say about the matter of sanctification, which is another area of tremendous confusion and misinformation among Christians today. All that's available at our website, dailyinchrist.org. Let's take a moment right now and let's pray. Our wonderful Heavenly Father, oh Lord, it seems so wonderful when we look carefully at your Word and we find out What a great salvation we have because of your heart, Lord, because of your grace, because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the finished work of Jesus Christ extends even to the fact that we're in union with him. We're in union with his death and his resurrection. We are therefore dead to sin and dead to the law and alive to you. Thank you, Lord, that your heart and your purpose for this is so that we would be in a marriage relationship with Jesus, so that we would bear fruit to God and not fruit to death. Lord, I pray that you would, by your word and by your precious Holy Spirit, continue to open our eyes that we may be able to see this glorious truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Father, I pray that you would work more and more in the experience of our lives, the wonderful freedom that is the birthright of every child of God. Thank you, Lord. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.